Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies. Well, no, this time... For Will Smith movies, what? I don't know. We're just doing a Will Smith movie. We're doing Independence Day. And joining me to talk about Independence Day on July 4th, or July 3rd when we're recording, is... Your token American, Caroline Sita. Hooray! Caroline, just, just what, two weeks, two, three weeks after being on the podcast to talk about Men in Black, we... I think a few listeners heard how excited we were when we were talking about Independence Day and said... Oh, it'd be great to hear you guys do an Independence Day podcast. And now you're just breaking the format of your own show, because this has nothing to do with comic books. It has absolutely nothing to do with it, but we are in a bit of a 90s blockbuster groove on Cinematic Universe at the moment. It is July 4th, and I thought, well, hey, why not? Let's stick out a cheeky bonus episode, and we get to talk about Will Smith, Jeff Goldblum, and um, a generally pretty awesome, awesome cast of Independence Day. I mean, just spoiler alert here, I will have nothing bad to say about this movie, so <laughs> if you want to just hear compliments for an hour and a half, settle in. Well, before we before we go straight into the movie, we're obviously dispensing with all of the normal um, structure of this podcast. It's just, a, it's just a let's have a fun chat about Independence Day. Um, but it's July 4th weekend, uh, or well, not weekend, it's July 4th now for you. Caroline, mm-hmm. um, obviously in this country, it's just another day on the calendar. Um, I know. I wanted to ask about that, actually. How do you guys, do you guys like feel sad about <laughs> Independence Day because you lost us? What's the um, general British conception of the American holiday of the 4th of July? So I think there is a, uh, there is a, there's no real nostalgia for the empire in this country outside sure. of, fair enough. Uh, outside of the, you know, maybe like, even the more radical side of Brexit, yeah. um, but I, I feel I feel I feel like our country generally thinks like, well, we pr- we probably did our bit in the twentieth century that like we we kind of won things around on a global stage. We did mm-hmm. the right thing in that century. So can you forgive us for being colossal assholes for the rest of it? <laughs> and mostly, the world has kind of been like, yeah, okay. Yeah, mostly, yeah. I mean. There's still parts of it that are a large mess because of us, but, you know. I mean, I, having said all that, Caroline, at the moment, you must be looking at British rule and thinking, mm, maybe not so bad. 
Yeah, it's a frequent topic of conversation uh, in terms of the current American political sphere. Although, I don't know, you guys seem to be having your own troubles as well, so... Yeah, no, we're all screwed. I feel like Canada is what we're all looking towards nowadays as the ideal. So, Caroline, um, outside of the the actual holiday itself... Mm -hmm. I think you said on the on the podcast that like as much that there are like certain movies that you revisit over and over again, and Men in Black was one of them. But even more so is Independence Day. So I'm just wondering, like, how did you discover the movie for the first time? Was it in theaters, or was it in was it on home release? Or yeah, it wasn't in theaters, but I do remember. I have a distinct memory of my dad and my cousin, who's like maybe four or five years older than me, going to see it in the theater. And I was a little too young. I think I was six. Uh, so I wasn't allowed to go. But I remember them coming back and being like, oh, this movie was awesome. And I don't even remember necessarily the first time I saw it. I think it was just one of those things. I mean, especially around Fourth of July weekend, it is just I think channels will do marathons where they just play the movie on repeat all day or at least play it a couple times a day. So it's kind of unavoidable around the holiday. It's funny. So you, just you've got a few of those kind life. of movies, haven't you? In the in the US, we don't really like. We don't really have a Boxing Day movie or a Bank Holiday movie. But it seems like I don't know. Like even you've even got Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We have a lot of the holidays covered. I do feel like there's a lot of classic. Like there's always a network that plays um, "It's a Wonderful Life" on Christmas Eve. Like there are mm. some sort of classic. Everyone gather around the TV traditions. They there's some channel that does a 24 hour marathon of a Christmas story. Sort of at some point around Christmas. Which, which is I the one like Christmas movie that just didn't make its way over here, by the way. I mean, honestly, it, I don't think it's very good. So I think you guys <laughs> chose well yeah. on what to avoid. It just it ne- never became part of things. Whereas I think It's a Wonderful Life is... That's the one movie that I watch once a year, every year. Um, yeah, I do the same. But I also do the same for Independence Day. That's when I revisit pretty much every, every 4th of July. And sometimes so, in between as well. I don't think I've seen this for a long time, but as a kid, it was a bit of a staple. And when I say as a kid, I think that like it's very similar to Men in Black, that we got a VHS copy of this movie. And I think I think probably it was one of those that you kind of like hoodwinked the parents into buying. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, oh, look, it's cheap. And oh, yeah, no, it's fine. It's only like, it's, is, it, is it a 12? I think it's maybe a 12 in our country, which would make, is it PG-13 in yours? Yeah, it must be. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it doesn't seem that outrageous to watch, but I, I don't know. There's an age, I think, at which watching Independence Day is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Those. I, the, I agree. The older you get, the scarier it feels. I just, I just think there's a, as a kid, it probably isn't appropriate to be watching this at eight or nine years old. <laughs> so you, but you didn't see it in theatres, you don't think? No, so I'm trying to think, did it come out in 96? So I would have been seven then, so I think I probably got it on VHS when I was about nine or ten. And even that, I think, is pushing it. Yeah, it's hard to remember now. I feel like as I've gotten older, I've become, like, stodgy about, like, children can't see this. But then I think back to the things I watched when I was young, and I, I don't know, you kind of watch it on a different level, I think, when you're younger. You're, you're more likely, I think, to be scared of, I think the existential, like, our country has been decimated stuff probably doesn't land when you're a kid and you're more likely to be scared of the scary aliens. And then I think as you get older, it's like, 
I don't know, for me at least, the part that freaks me out most is like the level of destruction that happens. That was the one thing about this movie that I had forgotten was the... So I, I, I remember the joke about this movie being like, okay, so these aliens have turned up and they've put their spaceships above these kind of major landmarks so they're just going to wipe out the landmarks and we'll just take out the white house and we'll take out the empire state building that's just the center of the chaos like they mm-hmm. wipe out manhattan and washington and la right are they, are they the yeah three cities and then they mention at one point they kind of casually say like oh now chicago and philadelphia are gone and then and then well, I that's think- it. It's, it feels like as the movie's progressing there are different places because like will smith goes off on his a dogfight mission and then comes back and like oh no that all, all that's gone now bud yeah no i think by the end of this movie a vast majority of the major cities in the world have been wiped out and the other ones have been evacuated and everyone's spread out i wish i haven't actually seen independence day resurgence which i'm assuming deals with the fallout of all of this stuff so i don't have that perspective mm. but if you this movie ends on a very like happy upbeat note but if you think about the reality of how the world would need to be rebuilt after this it is crazy it's it's huge i haven't watched independence day resurgence either um and i have no intention of watching it i don't think unless you know you know just one of those situations where it's on and you're like oh well i'm here yeah i, I it would be more inconvenient for me to leave at this point um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I can't. I can't imagine. I can't imagine seeking that out. And I don't feel like I need to. I don't feel like I, I like I need that sequel to give me any of the um, any of the fallout from things. I'm I'm happy with where this movie starts and ends. Um, and let's let's talk about the actual specifics of it. Um, it starts off with uh, what what I was impressed about this movie rewatching is that the scale is there immediately you're looking at the foot the, the footprints on the moon and a vibration vibrates them away so here are here are footprints that have been there for 30 years and whatever this is is just by flying past is wiping them away and then this entire spaceship wipes like t- takes the moon out of you and then the earth out of you and you're like Oh my god! What? How big is this thing? And then the fact that just the simple July second pops up on the screen. Well, this movie's called Independence Day, so we've got a three day countdown right there. I mean, and I. It feels like everything is on a. I I don't know. It feels like everything is on a. It, it's a race against time, and everything feels so big. And it, Im- immediately, I'm on. I'm like, I'm tense. I said this on the Men in Black podcast. Almost like a joke, but I I actually don't mean it as a joke. I genuinely think Independence Day is one of the best movies ever made in terms of fulfilling exactly what it wants to be and sort of both fulfilling a genre and also expanding a genre. In terms of this sort of action disaster movie, I do not think there is a more perfect one than Independence Day in terms of, like you're saying, the intro, the pacing, the characters. Like, I wish... I think anyone in Hollywood right now who is making a big budget action movie, which feels like half of the movies that get made nowadays, it Mm. should be required that they sit down and watch Independence Day and study this as a text for how to do this. Because I truly just think this film is perfect on that level. What stunned me was I was, um, I obviously knew that Roland Emmerich directed this and 
Um, I've seen most of his movies, and um, I know Caroline. You said you you like love quite a lot of his movies. I think love them. there's there's a there's a few in there. I mean, uh, this is this is definitely the peak. There's a, but there's a few in there. I mean, especially coming from this to two years later, Godzilla. Um, I wasn't so like, I wasn't surprised by visually what he was achieving, but like I had to check who had written it. So I was like, surely Emmerich didn't write it himself. Um, and yeah, it, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin wrote this. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's there's a really great article that um, Todd Vanderwerf wrote for Vox that is a it's centered around Independence Day resurgence, but it's more just talking about a broad general trend of how Hollywood action movies nowadays like don't have second acts, which is traditionally like you set up the problem in the first act, there's a big climax there at the end of the first act, you get a second act that's a little bit more character focused and setting up the plot and the goals, and then the third act is like another big climactic action stuff, and how modern day movies pretty much just cut out the second act and it just feels like you get set up, then nonstop action until you get an action climax. And or I think, some movies that just settle into that middle act groove where it's just, it's it's kind of existing in its own little, like, it's just like, well, let's put a mini story in the middle to give them something to do. Yeah. But that's, I, like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. No, for uh, sure. So, it just superhero like, movies can, can sometimes be guilty of that. For sure. Like something like Infinity War, which admittedly is trying to do its own thing, but that, that doesn't feel necessarily like start to finish movie like it does sort of feel like you're saying like an extended second act i think the new jurassic world also kind of felt like that but independence day just what impressed me so much on this rewatch was the way it just so perfectly builds to like great intros great character focused out and builds to these tiny climaxes throughout but also leaves breathing space between them which i think is what hollywood has forgotten how to do when i saw Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, it just feels like every scene, even if there's a little character beat in there, every scene is an action scene or has some sort of big climactic moment. And Independence Day knows how to build up to making the alien's arrival feel like a mini climax, but then things settle down and everyone's sort of talking about what to do. And then obviously you get the like iconic destruction of Manhattan and the White House scene, and then it kind of settles down again. And, and the way it sort of goes through those peaks and valleys and leaves time for the character stuff. It just feels like Hollywood does not do this anymore. And it's such a joy for me to revisit Independence Day and see it see it done so well. Because I love those 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 scenes where you where you kind of describing things settling down. They are doing, but because things are so tense and because the scale is so big and because the stakes are so huge, it feels like every second counts. And the characters don't just settle down and kind of like hang out and have a chat about like oh how's this affecting you how are things for you it's all done through progressing the plot it's all done for it through well well now what can we learn about the aliens by going over here and what does this character know and if these characters come together is that going to unlock that extra piece of information that's going to push things a little bit for- further forward and oh these two characters are going to be reunited and that's going to push him emotionally in that direction and that's going to do this to that and i i love the mechanics of of the middle act of this movie. Um, because I mean that really the first act is, it's kind of balls to the wall from the word go. And it like, mm-hmm. it shocks me. Will Smith's not in this movie until 20 minutes in. That shocked not- me too on this rewatch. I was like, Oh my God, we haven't even seen him yet. Well, he's in it after 20 minutes and he ha- he kind of has the scene at the house and he has the scene 
when he gets to um I don't know if you'd call them the barracks or where, wherever he get he gets to 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 meet up with the RAF, but not the RAF. That would be in England. Uh, <laughs> who, the gets, Air, who gets the a Air Force scene. Base? England gets a little moment here. It yeah, we, we, we can talk about. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think he's on the in the Air Force base and he's in the Air Force or yeah. in the Marines. Maybe I'm not sure. Uh, I think Air Force because he wants to because yeah because he's a pilot as need because he wants to be NASA. Um, and um, yeah, he's kind of he's there. And there are these two very brief scenes, but then after that, we're not getting we're we're not getting him really going into that first dogfight until about forty forty five minutes in because that has to kind of happen parallel with the big destruction. So, mm-hmm. like this is this is a big summer blockbuster. Will Smith is sharing. I think is it is it Smith Pullman and Goldblum all above the title on this. Um, uh, the what the poster I'm looking at, no one is above the title, <laughs> so I mean, I'm not that... sure. But they're the they're the first three listed on Wikipedia's uh, cast list. Yeah, and and they do feel like they get kind of equal shakes. Um, especially well, actually, maybe Will Smith gets a little bit less. I don't know, just because he comes into it a bit later. It really but... does feel like an ensemble movie in a way that I don't think we quite get anymore, and. And you're so right that it's like this, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't want to, I, I feel like I'm going to come across, I don't know, very strange for praising this movie in a relatively serious way. But I, I like don't know any don't of this so. comedically, like the way that they structure this movie and the puzzle pieces they put together, how efficiently they establish these characters, and then how neatly everything comes together. And they know when to say let's give a bunch of characters pre-existing relationships so we don't need a bunch of scenes that's just introducing everyone to everyone else, but then they have enough new relationships that we sort of have the, the fun dynamic of two people who don't know each other having to work together. And they give us sort of, at the beginning, it feels like a bunch of, you know, maybe two or three or four main storylines. And then by the end, they've all woven together in a way that doesn't feel like forced in any way it's just how they all converge in this area 51 some purposely some by accident and all these people we've been following from all different walks of life from the literal president to like a alcoholic crop duster are all equally important in this climax like i just think that this is a (laughs) beautiful script that is so impressive that's that's what I mean about being surprised that Emmerich wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Obviously with Dean Devlin, but yeah, that they wrote the Godzilla scripts a couple of years later. But it's those those story arcs that come together. So you've so you, yeah, you've got Bill Pullman in the Oval Office. That is mm-hmm. the big like okay, leader of the free world. How is he dealing with this crisis? Then you've got a scientist who has got Jeff Goldblum, who's mm-hmm. got a hold of the signal that the aliens are sending and is trying to decipher it and i guess the coincidence there is that he is the ex-husband of someone who works with the president now so there's a there's a bit of connected tissue um and that's how they come together early in the movie but then yeah you've got randy quaid who is kind of this alcoholic uh crop duster pilot who is a laughing stock because he was the victim of an alien abduction because he claims he was the victim of an alien abduction. And I feel like the the movie kind of never really shows its hand as to whether or not he is just a crazy guy or whether it yeah. did happen, which I think is kind of neat because even as 
even like even when they're in a situation two hours into this movie where they're like, right, pilots, who we got in front of me? Uh, that you, where are you from? Oh, I'm a crop duster, and yeah, I got abducted by aliens, and everyone's like. Oh, God, they roll their story. eyes, yeah. yeah you're like, <laughs> While guys, they're standing in yeah. Area 51 where there yeah. are literal aliens. <laughs> in the midst of an alien invasion. Uh, so I, I really like that. And then, yeah, he's he's got his family stuff going on, which I think they're, they're mostly there to give a bit of colour. I mean, everyone kind of has a bit of... Fam- outside of the four leads, they're just kind of given nominal family to motivate them, aren't they? But I think that it's done well in that it... It just, again, I think this is an art form Hollywood is to some extent kind of lost. It doesn't need to explain anything. It's like Randy Quaid, he's got these three kids. It's unclear if those three kids are even all from the same, like, why? Like, we don't even know the background on who who their mother or mothers were. We get the sense immediately that the older brother has kind of taken on the role of the father. The youngest um, son has, like, I think diabetes, some sort of illness. But they don't – there's not a dramatic scene where we need to describe what that is and what medicine he needs and da-da-da-da-da. And, and the middle sister – or the sister has, like, a boyfriend that's trying to use the end of the world as an excuse to sleep with her. And mm. none of that – we don't need to – it doesn't get over-explained. It all just, like – it feels like these characters do sort of exist outside of the frame of this movie. And they're sort of the – least developed of everyone in the movie but you get a sense of that family's dynamics almost immediately in a way that again i don't know why i keep comparing this to the the new jurassic park movies but it feels like in jurassic world we need to take 12 minutes to explain that claire has two nephews and this is their dynamics and let's over explain all of that as opposed to just letting it happen and sort of trusting the audience Mm. to understand the family dynamic i think it's done so well and they're just like i said they they wouldn't be part of this movie if they weren't connected to one of the four protagonists mm-hmm. who need to who need to push the film forward. But they get little moments to shine. And crucially, the movie doesn't forget about them when they are separated from their their protagonist. So we're still following Vivica A. Fox when she's not with Will Smith. Um, we're still following Randy Quaid's family. Uh, we're keeping up with, as I call her, President Laura Roslin, um, because she always will be yeah. when she's when she's separated from this movie's president. Well, um, and again, then they'll do so. Like for the most part, Will Smith is sort of separate from from a lot of the other plot arcs at the beginning, because, like you said, Jeff Goldblum and Bill, Holm- Bill Pullman. Well, I and, know so they is, all have and so is Randy names, Quaid, but, really. Yeah, I know they all have character names, but I feel like I just <laughs> think <Yeah>. of them <laughs> as their actor names. But you have Will Smith feels kind of separate. And then Vivica A. Fox ends up getting sort of separated from him. But then she coincidentally winds up with the first lady. And so then you have that story connected. And then you have Will Smith runs into Randy Quaid. And you could argue like, oh, all these things are so convenient. But how it feels more is that the movie has chosen to follow the people that will end up being important. As opposed to, oh, how convenient that all these people ended up being important. Yeah, I think as well, normally when things, when you're like, oh, that's convenient in a movie. If it makes things easier for the plot. Or if it makes things easier for the protagonists, then you're like, that feels like a cheat. It feels disappointing. But like, so, so the fact that Vivica Ray Fox and President Laurel Roslin meet, um, that's going to be confusing, but I'm going to keep doing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the fact that they meet doesn't actually change anything because by the time that they are both back at Area 51 with everyone else, Will Smith has been picked up by Randy Quaid and taken into the base because he has the alien. And that it's it's just the 
plots coalescing so the the coincidence that those two other characters met really doesn't affect things mm-hmm. all it does is it gives those two actresses scenes to play and it and it gives them three-dimensional characters to, and I think, to act out in the, in those in those intervening scenes. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that scene between Vivica Fox, whose character's name is Jasmine, and the First Lady, I think that's the perfect example of the kind of scene that we don't get so much in blockbuster movies anymore, where it doesn't have anything to do with the plot, like you're saying. It's just, let's let these two characters have a conversation and they both feel a little bit more like human beings when we leave and it makes us care a little bit more about Jasmine who we're already on board with and it makes us care about the first lady when she eventually dies she doesn't just feel like yeah she was a nothing character and I mean you talk talking about the Jurassic World movies which uh, fair comparison obviously my my go-to will be superhero movies usually (laughs) um and yeah can you think of the last superhero movie or like even last kind of team up movie where like say Doctor Strange has left a scene, we're not spending time with like Wong hanging out with the ancient one. And if we are, it's like one scene of exposition or it's one scene where like someone makes a quip. We're not, we're not spending time in subplots with them. Um, Right. This would be the equivalent of like Doctor Strange having a scene where Rachel McAdams and like Wong just chat about their lives separate from <laughs> Strange. And are do and, and are doing things that impact them that have nothing to do with the other characters. Yeah. And yeah. I will credit I do think Black Panther is is a recent exception that did do this well and like developed its supporting characters really well. So it's certainly not unheard of, but I feel no. like as a rule, it is becoming less common. And it's the thing I always come back to with Roland Emmerich movies. Like all of the movies in this character all the movies in this character, all the characters in this movie I care about so deeply, so much more than I can see characters in multiple franchises. Again, Jurassic World, I've watched Claire and Owen in two movies. I know less about them and I care less about them than any character in Independence Day. Mm. Even the ones that are in it for probably a total of 10 minutes of screen time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the the affection that you almost immediately have for Judd Hirsch, who just who's just coming on and who doing his Judd Hirsch thing, mm-hmm. but you you're putting Judd Hirsch and Jeff Goldblum together. You've got those family dynamics. You have just the like the adorable stuff with him meeting the president and being on Air Force One. But again, he's the one that unlocks the piece of Area 51 information. And he's the one that, you know, is... It, it's Jeff Goldblum needs some pushing towards reconnecting with his ex-wife if he has this piece of information. And it's, the, it's just, yeah, it always feels like the... The way that the plot progresses comes out of pushing character buttons, and I and I love that about the film. Yeah, um, it's just. I mean, again, I'm sorry that this podcast is just going to be us, or at least no. me saying everything's <laughs> awesome. But I do think, you know, and it was interesting. I was reading, rev- I was sort of scrolling through the original reviews of this movie, and a lot of people kind of, at the time, called the characters one note or sort of stock or stereotypical. And maybe it did feel that way at the time, but looking at where we are looking at where we're at now all of these characters feel so much more fleshed out than anything you'd get in sort of your average summer blockbuster like it really does feel like you you know all of them you can do good things with stock characters you set up the stock archetype and then you give it to a good actor and we talked about the cast here is pretty stacked um i i the, the only thing i will say is um you introduce all of these characters in the first act you then see three major cities wiped out and the only person we lose is Harvey Firestein. Pull yeah. one out for <laughs> pull one out for poor Harvey Firestein. Poor Harvey. Uh, 
He's great um, though. When he's there, he's fun. I mean, I do, his character yeah. feels a little re- uh, the most stuck in the '90s, maybe I would say, of of all of the characters. But in other ways too, I do feel like there's Independence Day sort of straddles this weird line between being very jingoistic and very American centric but also kind of a lovely celebration of diversity and the worth of people from all walks of life were sort of, I love things that val. I love entertainment that values people that aren't who stereotypically society values, like super educated, politically powerful people. And I think you get that certainly in Randy Quaid, but particularly in Jasmine, Vivica Fox's character, who I made a list on Twitter one time of like my favorite female film characters, and she is like top five for me. I love that character so much, and I love how much the movie values her intelligence and her resilience and her ability to get things done. Like, if there's one person from this movie that you want in your side in a crisis, I feel like it's Jasmine, and I love <laughs> that the movie values that so much in a very non patronizing way. In a way that's like, yeah, she's a stripper. Like, that's fine. And then here's also other skills that she has. And like, the way that it just doesn't judge her and also values her, again, I feel like is kind of rare. And the way it values all of these people. Yeah, I think that's the movie's general approach to character. And it's like, it's like the movie's premise is the world is facing a threat that by its very nature has to unite everyone. Mm-hmm. And actually it's a huge leveler at the end of the day. It doesn't matter whether you're the president or whether you're a crazy alcoholic drunk, you're going to be in a plane side by side at the end. And you've got two characters who have, you know, who would never ever have reason to meet in real life in the Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith characters. And those are the two guys who are buddying up at the end of the movie, cigars in mouth, taking down the alien mothership. It's... Yeah, and one guy's a trained Air Force pilot, and the other guy, I mean, he's built up to be very smart, but he's working for, like, a cable news company, like, and has yeah. kind of lacked ambition and, quote-unquote, li- thrown his life away. That's the and beauty that of casting, the two people though, that are that are equally important to saving the world. You cast Jeff Goldblum two years after Jurassic Park, um you are going to buy that he deserves to be in that spaceship. Um, I also like the reversal with him and Connie, his love interest, where she is the super ambitious career driven one. And he is unambitious and mostly just driven by love. I feel like that's a nice little subtle gender reversal of what we usually get in an action movie. And I think the movie does little things like that, that are smart as much as it is sort of like rah, rah America and, on some sense, a dumb action movie. It also does these smart little subversions that I find really interesting. Yeah. Um, we should talk, Caroline, though, about some of the action in this movie. Uh, can we start with Jasmine? Because I do think that she is um, central to probably the dumbest moment in this film. Would you, <laughs> would you agree with that? the best moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, think it, I think it might be the worst. So... There is a fireball going down a tunnel and it is killing everyone in this tunnel. Everyone is roasting alive. She grabs her child. She she manages to bash open a door at the side of the tunnel, like a service cupboard. Goes in with the kid, 
doesn't shut the door because the dog is still outside, calls the dog in, and the dog dramatically dives in at the last second. It doesn't matter that the door's still open. They're all okay. Everyone else in the tunnel is dead, but they're fine. (laughs) It is dumb for sure. And the shot of the dog leaping out of the flames is pretty bananas. And clearly what would really happen is all the oxygen would be sucked out of that room and or the fire would just go in and they would burn up. On the other hand, I will never complain about a scene with a hyper-competent person, particularly a woman, just being like, I am going to survive this situation. And she just grabs that kid. She kicks that door. She doesn't prioritize the dog. But once she's quote unquote safe, she makes sure that dog's okay too. Like this is the icon that I want (laughs) in my film heroine. So I, I love and hate that moment in equal measure, I would say. (laughs) It feels like every Emmerich film has a moment or two like that. Um, It's uh, what's remarkable to me is that the rest of the action, while a little bit ropey at points, early well, mid nineties CG. This is this is kind of early CG, but it's been mostly used to create big fireballs, so that's yeah. fine. It's it's a little bit ropey, but it doesn't. I don't think it matters because there's there's obviously a, a strong enough mix of practical effects. You can tell that those cars are actually crashing into each mm-hmm. other. You can tell that Emmerich's dropping cars from cranes onto other cars, um, and just uh, obviously six months or six years before. Sorry, but you can't. You can't rewatch this and not have nine eleven parallels yeah. with when you when you're seeing people diving out of cars, running down, um, running down uh, New York streets and fireballs. But it's just it's it it adds an extra kind of it adds it that kind of it, it just feels a little bit more scary, a little bit more real, and a little bit more. It's like less know, it of a fictional, fantastical yeah. thought, I think. Um and and yeah, the, the the scale of it. Obviously the the money shots of the destruction of the Empire State Building, the destruction of the White House are incredible in and of themselves. But yeah, I had the I had forgotten exactly how much destruction there was, how far those fireballs were going to go. And that yeah the entire city gets engulfed in it it's uh and it and it just escalates and escalates and escalates one if you want to talk about too the combination of sort of the really cool effects and then also the storytelling i do think emmerich probably more so in this film than in his later films i do think that this is sort of his career highlight but um Whenever there is a big level of destruction we almost always or always have at least some character point of view that we're following. So the scene, you know, the first big attack scene, we've got one attack in LA, one in New York and one in Washington. So in Washington, we're watching the president and Jeff Goldblum and that whole crew sort of barely escaping on air force one in LA. We're watching, um, Jasmine. But then even when we're watching a building get blown, blown up in LA, we're watching her friend who's also a stripper and mm. exotic dancer who Jasmine had said, hey, you should really head out of town instead of going to this sort of crazy party they're throwing downtown. And we're we're literally seeing the destruction initially happen through the friend's eyes and just giving us that little character who must have 30 seconds of screen time. That makes that moment of destruction, I think, just register so much more. And even yeah. giving Harvey Firestein, he's the character we know. So when we see the flames coming towards him, that registers more than it does as like random extra number 10. I like to think that his mom got out of the city. 
I know. It is really sad, actually. I do feel very... And the movie doesn't kill off too many people. They, they're they pretty charitable. But that one is kind of a bummer. President Laura Rosling goes in the middle. Yeah. Um, that, I think, else? might be actually the movie's weakest scene for me. Her death. I always it's, feel like it's it, slightly it's, weirdly handled. It's it, it, that's, that's exactly how I would describe it. I wouldn't describe it as good or bad, but oddly handled is exactly it. Because... They both arrive back and it feels like we've had this moment of, oh, great. Okay. So and it's like, I oh, know, but she is bleeding out and she will die. There's nothing we can do. And you, you're expecting the doctor to say, accept this amazing thing that I've just come <laughs> up with. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen. It just never comes. Um, and yeah. And then, and then she just, she gets to, she gets to say, well, and then, yeah, he goes up to her and says, oh, the doctor tells me you're going to be fine. And she's like, no, he didn't. Yeah, I find that weird, yeah. the lying to her about her health condition. And I also find the handling of the daughter strange. The kids are in this movie less than I remembered them being. Jasmine has a son, and then um, President Bill Pullman, President Thomas J. Whitmore has a little daughter. Neither yeah. of them are in it a ton, which I think is fine. But I always I- find the, the handling of sort of not telling the daughter that her, her mom is dying slash has died, I always find that slightly strange. Yeah, and that, so obviously the president's daughter is played by Mae Whitman, mm-hmm. who would go on to be a lot more famous. And the uh, the Vivica Ray Fox's son is played by the kid who was who played Little Nicky in at least some of um, Freshman Sabella. Mm-hmm. And which I think was after I think he and Will met on this movie, ah, and then right, Will incorporated okay. him. I believe that's the timeline. Will incorporated him into the Fresh Prince because that was, which is also crazy to watch this movie where Will Smith feels like this like hunk of beautiful action man and remember he was simultaneously still doing fresh prince where he kind of feels like a goofy like teen early 20 something because they just feel like entirely different performances to me yeah so we we talked about this briefly in the last episode obviously six degrees of separation was his first bigger movie and then in 95 he does bad boys in 96 independence day and then 97 men in black and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was on 1990 to 1996. So actually, Men in Black, even though it was released the year after, he was finishing up on... He literally went from the set of Fresh Prince to Men in Black. And then this, yeah, I think this... So it would make sense that he was, like, filming this in 94. And then that kid comes on for the last two years of Fresh mm-hmm. Prince. It is, it is crazy to think that he had those three films out there. Because this... We don't have film stars like we had in the 90s anymore. Um... And I think you kind of look at, well, you look at the people who are the closest to still being film stars and they are the people who were film stars back then because Mm -hmm. we've still got Tom Cruise and Will Smith and Johnny Depp and Brad Pitt and those, those kind of people. Otherwise we've got characters. Um, it's, It's a really weird thing to think that like now Daniel Craig could be in a movie and no one would care. Yeah. But if you if James Bond is in a movie, whether it's Daniel Craig or someone else, they might care more if it's Daniel Craig. But James Bond is the draw, and similar. But that that wasn't always the case. It wasn't always the case that that like Sean Connery obviously went off and became a star in his own right. These franchises would launch stars, but Will Smith is here, yeah, kind of becoming becoming this kind of final breed of action star. Um. Whilst whilst being in, in one of the funniest sitcoms of the nineties on TV, 
Um, and he would see kind of, I think he'd dominate for about a decade after this, right? Yeah. I'm just looking. Yeah, it's, it's The Pursuit of Happiness is 2006, which is a movie that Will Smith. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Howard to an enormous box office. Um yeah, it's at Hancock in 2008. So yeah, you kind of Kind of has like 10, 15 years, Will Smith, just owning the big summer blockbusters in Hollywood. And he's great at it. That's a, his, he is so instantaneously charismatic in this film. And what, in, in, in all of these films, really. You walk on and you're just like, yeah, that guy's cool. That guy is really, really cool. And I, I posted on Twitter last night after I watched the film, the, the still of Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith walking kind yeah. of across, across the desert with cigars in their mouth. Those cigars, which last a long time and also <laughs> go go through some stuff and still come out the other end. Um, but that scene is just like, that, that image of those two actors walking in slow motion, because the end of this movie is such a triumph. For, for all of the destruction, for all of the loss of life, the end of this movie is an enormous triumph. And that's that shot of those two characters walking together into the camera. I was just like, I don't think blockbuster cinema has got any cooler than that. I also think this is not to objectify our our famous actors too much, but I think this is peak attractiveness for Will Smith, Bill Pullman, and Jeff Goldblum, which I know is controversial because people really like him in Jurassic Park. But I think I think well, this people people really like him now. Yeah, that's, I mean, true. No, there's no bad era for Jeff Goldblum, yeah. but I think for those three actors, like, they are all in their peak handsome movie star phases. And yeah. certainly the women as well. I mean, you're not going to get a more beautiful woman than Vivica Fox. And so, yeah, it's just like <laughs> everyone's beautiful to look at. And this two beautiful men walking through the desert while two beautiful women run up to them. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to enjoy there. Um, The, the whole... The whole final act of this movie, though, the, the last, well, certainly the last 10, 15 minutes, 
Um, I, I always talk about my, one of my favourite films. Well, my favourite film is Back to the Future. And in ba- I, I saw Back to the Future at the Royal Albert Hall a few years ago with a live orchestra. And um, there were like four or five moments in the final act of that movie where people broke into spontaneous applause <laughs> because there is there is just such a significant win for one of the characters or such a moment where everything seems lost and then it's not. And in the final act of this movie, there are, well, I, I guess in, in the build-up to the, to the respective showdowns on Earth and in space, there are moments for all of those characters where you're like, it's a punch to the air and a yes, like, this is the, this is the human spirit fighting back. Obviously, none more so than the Bill Pullman speech, which we'll, which we'll talk yeah. about in a second. But then also, the, at the end of the movie, it feels like you get to celebrate three or four different times. Because it, it, the the plan comes into effect. And even though there are little hiccups along the way, it feels like you're getting to go, yes, you've done it. And yes, now you've done it. And oh, and now they've got the mothership as well. And oh, now they've stuck it to that alien. And it's just nonstop. It's great. When it makes the stakes so high, like, in, and I think that this goes back to scale, like those ships are huge. Just the, not even the mothership, just the ships that are over each of the cities. They're just so big. And it really does feel, I think a lot of times in movies, it can be hard for them to justify sort of characters going on suicide runs or doing these crazy over the top things. My logical brain clicks in like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? But they like kudos to this movie for creating a situation where I am like 100% the president of the United States should be flying a fighter pilot. That is the correct move Mm. to do here. And I feel like every they really earn all of the sort of like suicide runs and sacrifices that this film does because it really does feel like what's the alternative? The scale here is so massive, and if they don't do something to stop this, there's it really does feel like a last ditch effort. And it's not just that you want the characters. So obviously, you kind of in a movie like this, you want the characters you like to come out unscathed on the other end. But also, you're right, when Bill Pullman's saying, no, I should be up there fighting with them, you're like, yeah, and I want to see you doing that because that feels like the right place for you in this fight. And when Judd Hirsch is trying to talk Jeff Goldblum out of going up into space, you're like, no, Jeff needs to be there. Mm-hmm. He needs to... And it is, it's not that... It's, it isn't that it's... Um, it isn't that you're like, oh no, I want to see them put into the line of danger. What what you want to see is them getting them getting some prevail. Them getting because because the villains in this as well because they're aliens, they can just be unambiguously evil. Yeah. There's no there's no there's no like and and in every interaction, it's just oh like. Do you want, I'm sure we can find peace. No peace. All right, brilliant. That is effective. <laughs> they don't want peace. They're not interested in That is in probably it. the most efficient storytelling is just very clearly establishing, oh, Bill Pullman cyclically linked with them. There's no other alternative mm. other than war, so we don't have to worry about the ethics of that at all. Don't think about it. Yeah, uh, like, and the, <laughs> the like, they see it, because obviously there's the plane that goes up at the start and is trying to communicate to them all, in all of these languages and say... Nah, come on. We're like, we come in peace. This can all be okay, right? And they blow them out of the sky. So yeah, it's great. They're unamb- unamb- unambiguously evil. We're gonna we're gonna absolutely destroy them if we can, and we're gonna feel great about it when we do. 
and it's going to bring all of humanity together. As you mentioned, the one the one British scene. Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> There's a couple of moments. I mean, I, I do feel like I should just make clear. I would not call my love for this movie ironic, but I do love this movie on the level in which it wants to be loved, right? Like, I'm not trying to argue this is the Godfather level quality. This is a ridiculous movie. No no scene more than let's check in on all the international armies and everything is, every one of them is doing the most stereotypical, like the French people are smoking and they're like, oh, we in a dark shadow, we saw radios. And the British people, I think, say the word bloody like 20 times. I'm surprised <laughs> that they're not literally sipping cups of tea. Because I feel like Roland Emmerich was just like, we very quickly need to establish that these people are British. Let's just give them the most like upper class accents and and now everyone will get it. And the other ridiculous thing is at the end when all the spaceships have, tra- have crashed all around Earth and everyone's celebrating. And it is somehow daylight in Nevada in the U.S., Australia, somewhere <laughs> in Africa. And there's one more like... I don't know. It's somehow it is daylight in all of these places around the world at the same time, which really, I don't know what time of day that is. Um, but there, there is, there is a, there's something to enjoy about this kind of movie in that it, it is silly. It is excessive. It is over the top. Everything is that little bit too big. And I feel like you accept that bit, that little bit of nonsense. That's what you are. That's what you're there for. Yeah. And that's kind of why I like the dog jumping away from the flame scene because it is that's too much. utterly <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> no, I'm kind of on board <laughs> to some extent. But I think that this is a good, like a good comparison for this too, I think is Armageddon, which came out just a little bit later. And that's one of those things where, and there's a famous commentary track where Ben Affleck kind of loses his mind while commenting yes. <laughs> on this movie. And he's sort of saying, why would you train a bunch of, miners to be astronauts rather than training astronauts in the skill of mining like that doesn't make any sense but i do think in this movie it does make sense that jeff goldblum's the one going up to space it does make sense that bill pullman's the one flying the plane like they do sort of justify those crazy over-the-top choices in a way that i think future disaster movies and even future roland emmerich disaster movies had sort of logical problems of like why can we justify our characters doing these extreme things and this one it doesn't have them. It, it it counters all those questions before they can be raised. It's like you talk at the, the the scale of this movie. Now, I think you when when you get movies like this, they're kind that are this big. They're kind of a joke. They're kind of like oh, like our t- our tongue is in our cheek about how silly and over the top this is. There is there's for all of its knowing excess. Independence Day takes itself just seriously mm-hmm. enough, I would say. And it's like, no, yeah, that this is worldwide destruction. People are dying. And I can I can see why if this isn't your type of thing, you can just think, well, this is silly. And this is, you know, you've you calm down with all of this. How can you possibly <laughs> how can you possibly be enjoying this nonsense? And yeah, like I said, slightly jingoistic at times, I think. There's a there's a very you know, it's an Independence Day movie. There's a there's a kind of an a, there's a patriotism at the heart of this movie that I don't think other countries have. I certainly don't think we have it in Britain uh, to the to the extent that you have it in the US. This this idea, I think, if this was a British leader delivering the speech that Bill Pullman delivers, we would roll our eyes so hard. 
do you roll your eyes at the, the I was actually very curious no, about this, taking no. advantage of our cultural differences. Like, how does all that play, and particularly that speech, like, how does that play for you or for a British audience, do you think? It, it just, I mean, it, it kind of, it, it kind of plays into, I think, an American stereotype. Yeah. Um, but, but in a great way, because and, and I think because it's so well written, I don't know. There's there's something about the rhythm of that speech. Um, I I was watching. I was like, why why does this kind of get you riled up the way it does when he's delivering that speech? It feels it feels rousing. It feels iconic. It feels like yes, go get those aliens. Um, and I don't know why, because I think, yeah, in because Bill in, Pullman is the best. Maybe I say I've never been a big Bill Pullman guy. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, like this is this is the movie, pretty much. Um, everyone else, I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm I'm on board with, and not that I'm not on board with Bill Pullman in in this movie, but just that if you if you said to me, name me five Bill Pullman films, I'd say Independence Day five times. <laughs> <laughs> While you were sleeping, that's his other iconic one. And Sleepless in Seattle, where he's more of a comedic presence. But he had a nice little rom-com run there for a little bit. Spaceballs, I guess. Yeah, Spaceballs. In some circles. Um, he's a good mi- mix of sort of dashing. He's dashing in his own way, but he's not going to, like, he's not dashing in the way Will Smith, or even in the way Jeff Goldblum is. He's sort of, those are those three leads are three different kinds of dashing, <laughs> and they really appeal yeah. to all markets there, I think. I the You know, the speech, it's. It's interesting because this movie is obviously so American centric as I mean, frankly, I think all American movies are and or most American movies are. But the idea ostensibly behind it, as he says, is that we want this to be a day for the whole world, not just a day for America. And Mm. and kind of the, the theme of Independence Day, if there is a theme, is that, you know, when an outside force comes in, that's weirdly going to be the the thing that that rallies earth together and i think that this is an idea that a lot of sci-fi shows or movies use i know star trek has this idea that it was mm. once the vulcans who were the first alien race to make contact with earth once that happened earth immediately stopped viewing themselves as a bunch of separate countries and started viewing themselves as a whole earth and i think that there is an attempt to to do that in this movie where it's like we're going to use this morse code and reach out to everyone around the world and I mean, the corniest of corny moments, like here's an Israeli and an Arab, ar- you know, army working together alongside the British and and everyone's together. And I think even that it, it feels sort of like cheap American centric wish fulfillment. So I'm not going to argue that that is the most successful thing in the world, but it does feel like it kind of has its heart in the right place, even as it also wants to be a like, yeah, we blew everything up kind of movie. Yeah. And I think that's for for a. Uh... For a Brit, that is kind of the the view of America, or certainly at this era. I, mean, I don't like, think it's un, it's incorrect, frankly. It's, it's it's it's. I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's like you you've got your faults, but you're our best friends. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. Sure. Yeah. Old family connections, you know, runs yeah. deep. Um. Is there is there anything else in this movie that you would particularly pull out as just like here's a moment or or here's a character or here's a subplot that you really love? I mean, literally all of them, but the one <laughs> that I'll I really like Harry Connick Jr.'s involvement in this movie as um, uh, Will Smith's initial sort of uh, Air Force another Wikipedia person who's list never really captain. So they must be the like I don't know enough about 
military structure, but they must be the like Air Force division of the Marines. But I really like Harry Connick Jr., like particularly as an actor, actually. And I think that's again, it's like a minor role that gets just enough of a little relationship between them that you feel his loss. And then you feel why, you know, like Will sort of his complicated <laughs> journey of transferring those affectionate See, brotherly feelings to David on their on their last mission and the cigar tradition and all that stuff. Even from watching yesterday, Carolina, I've forgotten that he was in it. <laughs> no, are you yeah, kidding? It, he gets that iconic, I, he gets all those little iconic moments. And one of my favorite moments is when he, the little scene where it winds up looking like he's proposing. And I really like the guy that walks in. And it's just kind of like, oops, sorry, I interrupted. Like, <laughs> it could have been a far more homophobic joke. And it just plays as like a joke. A situational joke, I think. And I like that a lot. I think with Harry Connor Jr., it's just another one that he's an actor, or he's a he's a c- celebrity that never really had the impact in the UK that he mm. did in the US. Um, and I, I think as much as, as much as I like that early stuff, it kind of feels like, oh, and here's our Top Gun scene. We'll, yeah. we'll, do, our, we'll do our Top Gun stuff. Very Top Gun. Um, and that's fine, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for Will Smith and like, I know that that guy's going to die. Aw, <laughs> I like has, him. I like him. Will Smith goofy. has to be on his own by the end of this. I'm like, yeah, Goose can die. <laughs> his goofy Southern, Southern charms. I do think the movie does a good, it takes itself seriously, but it does, it is very comedic throughout. Like it has its characters be very funny and yeah. it doesn't invest in the full emotional weight of the destruction that's happening. Like we get, we get news that LA we witness LA being totally decimated and then the next scene is like Will Smith and Harry Connick Jr. kind of goofing off in a briefing meeting and there is a, there is a sense of like we're not fully grappling with the ramifications of this because we want you to still be having a good time there is I, I think that's that's why it's so hard for movies and, and even Emirates own movies to replicate the success because that it feels like such a delicate balance that could go wrong. It feels like there are contradictions. It takes itself seriously, but it doesn't. It shows the enormous scale, but it kind of forgets about it when it's yeah. convenient. Um, it really invests emotionally in certain areas and then kind of skirts over others. Um, but it, it seems to find the perfect balance time and again. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how you would, I don't know how you would replicate that. No, really, and clearly, really and clearly Emmerich has sort of, to some extent, spent a lot of his career trying to replicate this. He had done Stargate before this, which is another movie I really like, and that it feels different. That one doesn't quite feel like a disaster movie in the way his his follow up ones would would. But he did Godzilla. The, he did Day After Tomorrow, which I think is the one that comes closest to recreating this, although not quite as well. Hmm. He did that terrible 2012 one with John Cusack that I think is pretty awful. Uh, I think t- I think 2012 has its moments. <laughs> Do you? Well, the <laughs> one I think has its moments is White House Down <laughs> with Jamie oh, Foxx White- and Channing Tatum. White which House I Down is could great. <laughs> kind of watch on a loop forever. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. That like all of them seem to get it right at certain points, but just not across the board, really. The other um, thing I want to say about Roland Emmerich too is. You know, I think we when we talk about sort of diversity in Hollywood, we almost always talk about the performers, which sort of makes sense because that's who people are going to be seeing and connecting with. But Roland Emmerich is just an openly gay man in Hollywood who has made some of the most, like, stereotypically macho, mainstream blockbuster movies. 
And I think that's kind of cool. And I know that he did a terrible job with that Stonewall movie, and he certainly has his own problems with sort of like the representation we see on screen. But his presence as a mainstream director is its own form of like representation and diversity that I don't think we always think about as much as we do the on-screen stuff. Do you know what? It's it's often the case that your your best action movies are not the ones that are made by your stereotypically white male machismo kind of directors. Your Michael Bay's, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You look at even what um, Catherine Bigelow has done kind of Mm -hmm. with her career undercutting that machismo and um, it's, it's always there. It's all the, the slight, the slight undercutting of it is always there, but also she, she's made films like Point Break and yeah, yeah. The Hurt Locker that are so, are so about that, are so inherently about that. And yeah, and, um, yeah, the, the, the kind of the heroic dude saving the world is, <laughs> is all over this. Um, but Emmerich, Emmerich makes it work. It makes, he makes you care about all the characters. I um, think the I other, was... the other character we have to, highlight of course is brent spiner as a sort of like very kooky doctor which is so fun to see him he's so associated with data to me and i think so many other people from star trek next generation and it's so fun to see him as the literal polar opposite of data yeah it's just just all of the emotion all of the (laughs) nothing nothing is restrained about this performance (laughs) it is just all hanging out he's he's having a great time and that's the scene that's the scene that when you're a kid absolutely terrifies you you've got this yeah, kook, when he gets... kooky mad scientist who like when you watch it and how you're like oh this guy is kind of a hapless fool isn't he uh, <laughs> at the time i was like oh no no that guy we like that guy <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and it, and it's speaking through him and then even not being in the room getting in the head of the president and I and I love the character design of the aliens. They're obviously very like they're like sub HR Giga, aren't they? They're yeah. like they're your idea of what a just an evil alien would be. But I like I like some of the I like some of the stuff they do with the design. I like the fact that what we originally see is not the alien, it's the alien suit and that we actually we have to cut into it to actually see the the alien emerge. And um do you know what being sub HR Giga and just kind of cribbing those designs and and making something a little bit more humanoid, a little bit more humanoid and a little bit less phallic out of it. Um, <laughs> it's it, it makes for a scary villain. And yeah. I do have a question about the size of the aliens. So it seems like the they've got this sort of exoskeleton thing that I think looks the most like the xenomorph from Alien. Mm. And that seems to be it's definitely larger than a human, but it, it's like maybe like eight feet, 10 feet, something like that. And then inside there's the sort of more bug-eyed traditional alien that seems to be smaller than a human, roughly human size. But the thing that always gets me is when we get to the first time they get to area 51, I also feel like now I'm starting to sound like a weird conspiracy theorist (laughs) in the detail in which I'm describing this. Bear with me here. They get to area 51 and they've got the three aliens sort of in, Tube, they were the ones that, that crashed in the 50s that they've just sort of studied as specimens. Those are the interior bug-eyed aliens. But those seem to be almost this... It's like they built those too big. Like, there there seems to me to be a continuity error in how big the interior I feel like they alien get, is. I feel like they get 
bigger like i feel like the alien is smaller on the table and then gets bigger and it's almost as if like those long drooping like dreadlock tentacle uh-huh. things become like extra limbs i'm not i i but i i couldn't i couldn't say that with any confidence you're right that sometimes you think oh my god now it's massive it's just very unclear to me how big the internal yeah thing is because their heads when they're in those tubes seem far bigger than the heads of the exoskeleton things. I don't think, they don't seem like they could fit inside to me. And I don't know if it's supposed to be like the tubes have distorted their sizing. But of all all the times I've seen this movie, that's the one like, I'm, I'm always like, there's something there I'm not, <laughs> there's some plot hole or I'm not watching it correctly because that's never quite made sense to me. Yeah, and... <sighs> it's the only flaw clearly that I found in this movie <laughs> in all of my the, years of watching it. the only flaw. I was gonna. I, I wanted to talk about a couple of the other like real supporting the the kind yeah. of the real smaller characters in this movie. Um, I I actually quite like some of the little moments with the um, with the uh, the kids in the family. Yeah. Um, and I particularly like the arc that the daughter goes on, which is the start of the movie. He's got this boyfriend who's just wanting to have sex with. Her. That's all he's interested in. Um, and then. <laughs> And then you've got you've got the end of the movie, her finding this guy who she's like, oh, I, I'm going to use the guy's line from that he used on me earlier yeah. in the movie <laughs> because maybe this is what I want. And he's like, oh no, I like you. I, like let's not let's not sneak off at the end of the world to do this thing that's going to be quite harrowing for both of us. Let's let's not let's not make this the moment. I like the the son, the older son too. I think is a nice little. What's the other thing that he's in? There's another... He's got another bigger movie, right? I don't know. Weirdly, I know the guy that has the one line that's like, let's sleep together, you don't want to die a virgin or whatever. Because he had 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 kind of had an early 2000s career. Uh, He's Frank from Donnie Darker. That's why I... Oh, yes, 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 yes. The guy in the the, But that's the guy that plays his son, yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah. I I don't know who the guy... The guy that you're talking about didn't... Yeah, he was... I'm pretty sure that's the guy from 10 Things I Hate About You, and he had an arc on the TV show 7th Heaven as well, and just has, like, a kind of one-line appearance here. But yeah, I like that whole family, too. I think that there's a nice little dynamic of... I don't know. I just feel like I very clearly understand that family dynamic, and I'm not even sure that the youngest kid has any lines, and yet somehow I fully (laughs) understand how that whole family operates. I... Yeah, I, th- I think the thing that I just keep coming back to with this movie is that it it shouldn't work, but it does. And it's pitched in just the right way. And it cares about just the right things, just the right amount for me to go, yeah, I'm with you all the way to the end. And you'll laugh. Like, there's some good jokes. Mm. Will Smith is very funny. But also, I was kind of getting choked up on this rewatch. And where not in a, not in when- a way... Sorry, sorry, go on. No, no, no. Oh, I was just going to say, when when, when um, Captain Hillary, when Will Smith and Jasmine are reunited, when they both sort of, they both sort of think they're gone, but they both sort of still go to that airbase where they promised they were going to meet up. Mm. And then just their joy at finding out they're both still alive is like really lovely. Obviously, Bill Pullman's speech I find incredible and always makes me get emotional. But there, yeah, there's just some like, Nice little emotional, just enough little emotional beats in between all the silliness to, to make you feel invested. Yeah, and the I I think with the silliness, with the humor in the movie, the humor feels 
natural to the characters. And I think Will Smith was was uh, Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum have always been very good at this. But um, and probably casting people like Judd Hirsch and Randy Quaid in your movie helps. Um, but the the humor never feels forced. It never feels like it's it's a layer that has been put on top of the rest of the movie. It just feels like it's just it's just part of it. It's part of the wider narrative, and we're not we're not kind of. Do you know, like, there are some, and not the Marvel movies, but the movies that have tried to ape the Marvel movies. Um, the ones that have tried to ape the Marvel movies are the ones that have, like, kind of... I, I think, like, the Jurassic World movies are another good example of this. It's like, let's pause for the funny scene. Mm-hmm. Let's pause Let's pause for the slapstick here, and then let's get back to it later. Whereas this feels like character cracking a joke in the face of the apocalypse. And you can't underestimate, and this was the big theme of our Men in Black podcast too, but you can't underestimate just the inherent charm of Will Smith. Just no. that scene where he's dragging the alien through the desert and like railing at it and I like, could have been at a barbecue. <laughs> like You could just kind of let Will Smith go and he's going to deliver something charming and funny and mm. great. Um, I also really like uh, Robert Loggia in this movie, who is uh, who is the, the general... Um, the the kind of the war chief that um the president is dealing with he's obviously yes, he's the good one not the not the sort of weaselly secretary of defense yes yeah not james redborn yeah uh but, but i mean they're both good but logia i just he's someone that i always enjoy turning up in things i think he's uh he's probably best known for big isn't he but i i i have a lot of affection for his very short arc on the sopranos and uh he yeah he's he's one of those faces of it um Empire Magazine calls them the 27%ers, who are the people who, as soon as they turn up in a movie, no matter what, you are 27% more interested <laughs> when when they've come out, come onto the screen. Uh, they're probably never big enough to lead a movie in their own right. But when they're there, you're like, yes, brilliant. I am I am now in. Um, and that, that, yeah, the supporting cast has a lot of those. I think with the sort of all the government advisors to the president, that's where the, that's where the movie leans the most into archetypes you've seen before. But it just does them well. And to some extent, mm. I think leaning into cheesy archetypes is, it does so in a good way. Like the, and, and maybe this is what I hope that we have not been skipping over in this conversation, but the cheesiness is what makes this movie good. Like it's not that this movie, because there are movies, there are action movies that take themselves too seriously and that is actually their downfall. And this one doesn't do that. Like it finds the but- cheesiness and definitely like Bill Pullman just being like, you're a jerk and you're fired secretary of defense. Like that moment is cheesy as hell. And that's what makes it so good. But again, I don't think the movie is fully, I, I don't think the movie is fully intending to embrace that. I think the movie is lucky. I think the movie is almost at some points taking itself a little bit too seriously and then thinking it's delivering a zinger. And Maybe. Just, yeah, that could be. I, I, Cause I just, I think otherwise, like otherwise all, all movies would be able to be this cheesy and it work. But I think if it, you can you can tell when a movie's trying to be, yeah, um, and that's what I mean. You know, like because we don't we don't particularly get like big studio bad movies anymore with with any regularity anyway. Um, but what what we do t- try and tend to get is like really bland ones, um, yeah. and so the like the bad movies that get made now, the the kind of movies that would show up on how did this get made, they'll do put they'll do episodes from the 80s and the 90s of these movies that got legitimate budgets and legitimate releases the ones now that are bad that are outright bad 
they're made to be bad or they're made with this nod and a wink. Like a Sharknado uh, style. Yeah. Or uh, even like like something like, I think White, so White House Down always felt to me like the the nice side of Olympus Has Fallen. The, yeah. Like Olympus Has Fallen is the one that's go, that's kind of like, try, like it real, it, it knows that its hero is this just ridiculous guy who's going to go and save the world. Whereas Channing Tatum feels like a real bloke in White House Down. You know, I think that's actually, that's like the perfect amount. Like Olympus Has Fallen maybe takes itself a little too serious or definitely takes itself a little too seriously. White Wait, what's the other one called? White House Down? Yeah, <laughs> I always one. mix them up. White House Down, it leans on the cheesy side, much more so than Independence Day. Mm. And arguably maybe a little too much. And Independence Day sits right in that like perfect Goldilocks, this is just right balance of tones that I don't know if anyone, including Roland Emmerich, as I said before, has ever perfectly replicated. And maybe that's down to the cast or the writing or this being him sort of pioneering a new genre to some extent. Cause I do think that this combines sort of those old seventies disaster movies. That's something yeah. like airplane is parodying, which I also tar- love. Tar- I used to love those, Inferno, those yeah. kind of things. Yeah. I used to love those growing up, but it's also sort of pairing that with the like horror creature monster movie feel the, of Jurassic the thing, Park alien. or yeah. Or alien, and movies. then yeah. also sort of just like the general sci-fi thing. Like it's blending all of those in a way that I do think was, kind of revolutionary but in retrospect feels like oh yeah this is every movie now but i do think we can't underestimate like how much independence day was sort of groundbreaking in that way in in terms of blending all those genres and maybe it was the fact that this was sort of inventing a new genre that makes this one click so well and that every other movie then is to some extent copying this one even though earlier i recommended every movie should copy this one (laughs) maybe maybe there's just no way to replicate this perfection i mean that's that's what I kind of feel like I keep coming back to is that I really like this and I kind of feel like I really like I feel like it's good ninety percent on purpose and then just ten percent yeah gets that gets that little bit of like accidental magic that just tonally it sits in just the right place and the cast and the casting I don't think you can underestimate the casting yeah I don't think so either they're so good I I'm torn between thinking we should just keep praising this or trying to think if there's anything we should like critique or temper this with or um like i said i i i think the critique is inbuilt into the praise because (laughs) at times at times it is too big at times it is too cheesy um but yeah, ultimately it ends up working. There are, there, are, there are occasionally moments where you're just like, oh, you just you just leaned a little bit too hard in that direction. But yeah, ultimately I think it does end up working. And I think if you buy into the first half hour, the final half hour is just incredibly rewarding. Really satisfying. Yeah. And it helps too, I think, Independence Day, 4th of July, it's a very corny holiday, <laughs> I think even as someone who enjoys celebrating it, like it's very corny and cheesy and old fashioned. And so it kind of works that Independence Day is geared around that holiday, I think. I think it's, I think our, our closest equivalent is November 5th, Bonfire Night. Sure. Um, but yeah, we go out and eat toffee apples. We, we have fireworks as well, which is why I think they're probably mm-hmm. similar to some extent. But you know, it's not a holiday that we have time off work. It's just, it's just a night. Um, 
but there is there is something a little bit silly about it that we all go oh do you remember that terrorist who tried to blow up parliament well let's that he was then horribly tortured let's put an effigy of him on a fire and watch it burn yeah (laughs) it's very strange it's very strange and i feel like to enjoy the independence day movie i enjoy it in the way i enjoy the fourth of july holiday which is that it's difficult to just blanket celebrate america which is a country that has had a horrific history from its beginnings and up until today is clearly in doing some horrific stuff on the world stage has a horrible human being as the president like it is very difficult to just wholeheartedly love america and i would be skeptical of anyone that does and yet fourth of july you can sort of enjoy this cheesy celebration of these ideals of what America should be in some way and sort of enjoy the cheesy throwback of like a neighborhood parade and a carnival and it it requires you to shut off a certain amount of your brain to just unironically enjoy the holiday and that's sort of how I enjoy Independence Day as a movie as well like you can't take it too seriously it doesn't necessarily take itself too seriously certainly I think there's a strong argument to be made that elements of this are problematic in terms of the jingoistic stuff but you can also see it in its best ideal form. <laughs> you can kind of enjoy that too. So I think I celebrate celebrate the holiday and watch the movie with the same spirit. Yeah. All right. What what a, what a brilliant way to sum it up. <laughs> I don't think I don't think there's anything that I conveniently <laughs> add on top of that. Um, Caroline, I think I should be praised in some way for managing to get through this podcast and keep my cool as the England game has been on in the background. It's yeah, that's your that's your um. <laughs> That was a Will Smith level heroic effort from you. (laughs) There have been two goals and a lot of drama whilst we've been doing this podcast. Two goals for England or? uh, No, one for each team. England conceded just before the end of normal time. It's gone to extra time. Um, And uh, yeah, so as of recording, we don't know whether England have progressed or not. Listeners will (laughs) either be very happy or very sad. Our English listeners anyway. Um, or, Or just won't care. (laughs) <laughs> we had to rearrange our podcast last week because um seb realized that we'd scheduled it for the same time as the last england game so yeah <laughs> i mean there's nothing more american than rescheduling your entire schedule around sports maybe that's just a a worldwide thing but i i can definitely relate even if soccer slash football isn't the biggest deal over here honestly because I, I, my knowledge of the american calendar is mostly around sports <laughs> yeah your your fascinating cross-cultural love of american football yes and the green bay packers hey I'm, I'm, me and caroline and i met in chicago last year um in december when i was when i was over to see the packers and i'm going back in september so we're gonna meet again aren't we caroline we'll, yeah we'll have maybe to we should do a live a live yeah, podcast i to do it yeah a live podcast on the packers or on comic book movies sure well i think or we should do more some, will smith movies give, yeah just more will smith movies i think given your strange love of american culture and my strange love of british culture there's just far more for us to take advantage of in that realm uh, yeah exactly let's find an english pub in chicago and uh, record a podcast perfect i have a, I, I have an irish pub that i like is that acceptable or is that a controversial suggestion to make uh not to me <laughs> okay <laughs> hey in I the actually... spirit of independence day it will be a pub not just for america not just for england <laughs> not just for ireland but for the world for the world and the World Cup. Just trying to tie it all back together. <laughs> now we've That's just gone the... off the rails. Yeah. 
Um, well, Caroline, thanks so much for giving up a, a, an hour and a half of your um, of your July 4th holiday to talk about Independence Day, but it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, thanks for just continuing to have me on the podcast to discuss all of the loves of my childhood. As I said in the <laughs> Men in Black podcast, I really do feel like I'm living my own Ready Player One where you're just letting me bask in <laughs> nostalgia that I have. So yeah, it has been a joy for me. Ninja Turtles. Men in Black, Independence Day. What more can you ask for? Truly. Um, listeners, I won't do all the end spiel. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with Minnesota next week. Bye! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.